Thank you all for leading us in worship this morning. And, you know, my hope is that, as is often the case, when we have those words sung over us and we engage in uh, just the practice of giving, that it becomes more than a routine, it becomes more than just some sort of a habit, but we truly are reminded what worship really looks like, right? That, that according to Romans 12, 1, worship is a lifestyle, right? It's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of sacrifice, that when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, this becomes our spiritual act of worship. And so when we, when we give, right, when we take that moment uh, to give in the course of our service, this is an expression of worship. This is a way for us to say, my life is a sacrifice. There, there are things I'm willing to surrender as a result of the devotion and the praise that we carry for God the Father. And so uh, that's an important message for us on a day like today when we think about this theme of sacrifice and we think about the idea of surrender because uh, as many of you are aware, this past Wednesday marks what the church has historically referred to as Ash Wednesday. Right? It's what kicks off the Lenten season, this kind of 40-day journey that takes us to the cross, that takes us to Easter. And it's been common for believers for many generations to engage in this season with uh, extended gestures of sacrifice and devotion. Things that prepare our hearts for all that God has done for us through Christ. And so I would encourage each of you in your own way as the Spirit leads you, as God leads you to embrace the significance of this season and truly begin to prepare your hearts for what Easter truly accomplishes for all of us, right? That we can take the time to engage in that increased level of devotion and sacrifice as a full expression of worship for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so when I pray here in just a minute, I'm praying not just for the message today and not just for the next few moments, but really for this season, that our hearts would be prepared to respond to the gospel in a way in which this gospel demands and deserves. And so that being said, would you just pray with me for the next few minutes and let's ready our hearts for all that God has in store for us. Father in heaven, we do come before you in a spirit of waiting, in a spirit of preparedness. One that helps us, Father, anticipate all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And we ask God that uh, not just in this morning, but through this season, that your spirit would accompany us, that it would awaken our hearts and our souls and our minds to what you have done. Father, take us to new depths of understanding of the cross and of the resurrection. God, may we not treat it as commonplace. May we not treat it as routine or a part of a, of a yearly schedule. But God, may we be swept away once again in all that you have done through Jesus. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you today. May we do it in spirit and in truth, bringing you the glory that you deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Man, spring forward. Whose idea was that? I am not a fan, right? But it's good to see you all. I'm glad you all are here today. So last week, we began a new series in the book of Acts, and uh, we kind of laid some groundwork and identified some context to this series that, that I want to at least highlight a few of those main points as we begin again today, that when we start the book of Acts, it's important for us to keep in mind that this is the second volume of a two-volume work, right? It, when you look at the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, they share the same author and kind of continue this, this same message. Now, the instinct is to divide these two works by looking at the Gospel of Luke as being the story of Jesus and the book of Acts as being the story of the church. But one of the things that we discussed last week is that the real demarcation between these two works and, and what really kind of changes the theme is that it's not so much uh, Jesus in the church as much as it is uh, the earthly Jesus and the heavenly Jesus. Right? That what defines these two is this ascension. 
right? In the Gospel of Luke, we see all the details of the earthly Jesus and the earthly ministry. But now in the book of Acts, we see the significance of the heavenly Jesus and, and the reign and the rule and the power and the authority that, that takes place when he's seated at the right hand of God and how that begins to lead us to these other significant promises, promises of the Holy Spirit and promises of the church. And so we talked last week how we want to lean into those promises and, and lean into them with greater understanding and, and that that ultimately leads us to live our lives in a way today where we can stand on the promises of God, right? Then when we trust in, in God's faithfulness, when we trust in his promises, it influences our conduct, it influences our confidence, it, it gives us courage, it gives us consistency. This is the sort of lifestyle that we want to live into. So we, we talked about specifically how that leads us into the kingdom, right? That Jesus speaks about the kingdom to his disciples. And so we tried to, to think through a, a few more practical implications and what that will mean for us in the life of this church. And we noted last week that this is a significant year for our church. It marks the 90th anniversary of our church's existence, something that we're going to truly celebrate on a special day in June, but really throughout the year. And so we went into greater detail in terms of how we anticipate to celebrate that. We issued some challenges and laid some groundwork for those things. And so if you weren't here with us, uh, keep in mind this information will keep coming forward. In fact, hopefully in, in the next few days you'll receive a letter. And I would encourage you uh, to read it, okay? Because if you're like me, if it's not a bill, you just throw it away, okay? But if you see something from UBC, go ahead and take it, read it, get caught up to speed on some of the things that we discussed last week. Uh, if you don't believe in mail, right, don't worry, we'll give you an electronic copy as well. So all of us should be covered in some capacity. But, but we are going to continue to keep this message in front of you in terms of how we want to celebrate this 90th anniversary, okay? Now, last week we talked specifically on the first three verses in the book of Acts. And, and it was this summary statement that spoke to uh, that Jesus gave these instructions. He presented himself to his disciples with many convincing proofs, speaking to them about the kingdom. And we kind of worked through that for a little bit. Well, well, today is still a discussion on the pre-ascended Jesus, right? This is really a look into the specific instructions that Jesus gave his disciples before he was taken up into heaven, okay? And so we're going to look into exactly what those instructions were. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we'll pick back up in verses 4, reading verses 4 through 8. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to, to the ends of the earth. All right, so I want us to step into this text for a moment. Right? Imagine what you would be thinking at this point in time if you were one of Jesus' followers. Right? If you were one of those disciples. I mean, think about that for a moment. You, you spent the, the, the entirety of his earthly ministry with him. You've seen the authority of his teaching, the, the remarkable nature of what he has said. You've seen some incredible miracles and then all of a sudden you've had all of that crushed through the cross right you, you've seen all of your hopes completely shattered because of his death and soon as you begin to deal with that grief and that misery you brought out of that despair because of the amazing reality of the resurrection like here you are you're, you are now dining with this resurrected jesus you put your 
your hands in his scars. You shared a meal with him. Imagine what you must be thinking. I mean, can you imagine the excitement, the, the joy, the disbelief, all of it wrapped into one moment? And you've got to be sitting there thinking, what is he going to do next? What does this mean? And there must have been such this eagerness and this anticipation. And now all of a sudden we read these instructions that are going to reveal to us today that, that it didn't quite meet the expectations of the disciples. Or it wasn't exactly what they were thinking. And I'm sure we can all relate to that on some level or another, correct? I mean, we've all had those moments where we've received instructions that didn't make sense, right? I'm sure you can think of some of your own. For whatever reason, I was trying to think of something to apply to my own life, and I kept going back to golf and the way in which I learned golf, okay? So, so one of the things about my experience with golf was that I was taught it by my father. My father's the golfer in my family. And so he was the one that kind of showed me how to play at a young age. And I, I've discovered, at least in my personal experience, that there must be something inherent with this father-son relationship that makes most sons, when it comes to sports, just not want to listen to their fathers whatsoever, okay? Because that's how it was with my dad. My dad would put me aside. He's like, now, here's what you need to do. Here's some technique. Here's, and I'd be like, yeah, I got this, right? You're like, I just didn't want to listen to it, which is probably why I'm paying for it now with my own children. And that kind of give me the same sort of treatment. But I remember being so frustrated learning to play golf, primarily because it's the most frustrating sport that's ever been created. But you stand there. And here's this little white ball, and it's, it's not moving, it's just right there. You know, it's not curving, it's not deviating from its path, and you think, all right, I should just be able to knock this straight down the fairway here. And so knowing that you have to hit it far, I would approach the ball, and I would swing as hard as I possibly could, right? And I would just imagine it just lifting off and having this beautiful shot, but it seemed like every time I would hit it, I would swing as hard as I could, and it would just scurry along the ground and barely go like 20 yards. Right? I'd be so frustrated with it. I act like it only happened when I was learning. It still happens all the time, right? But, but I was so frustrated by it. And so I, was, I, I had so many failures that I finally thought, okay, let me see what my dad has to say. And when I finally stopped and kind of listened, he, he gave me some instructions that I just didn't expect. He said, Jeremiah, don't swing so hard. Right? Just smooth and easy. And, and that was so counterintuitive to me because I'm sitting there thinking, but I've got to get it far. I should swing as hard as I possibly can. But okay, old man, we'll do it your way this time, you know, and so I, I get back up to the ball, and I take my time, and I just smooth and easy, and sure enough, right up in the air, right down the middle of the fairway. I've been playing golf for more than 30 years. That's the only time I've hit it in the air, right down the middle of the fairway, but at least it happened once, and I remember thinking that was so unexpected. It was so counterintuitive to what I would have anticipated beating the instructions to learn to play golf. I feel like it's similar in this moment, right? We've all got those moments where you think that shouldn't work that way, and so here's this occasion where the disciples are eating with Jesus, right? They're sharing a meal, and they've got all this enthusiasm. They've got all this excitement, all this joy. And Jesus begins to talk to them, and they're probably hanging on the edge of their seats. What is he going to say next? What is the next thing that's going to occur when they all of a sudden hear Jesus say, wait, don't leave. Don't do anything, just how would that hit you? I mean, if you really think about it, how would those instructions truly resonate with you? Wouldn't it be somewhat confusing? And much like we, we saw earlier, there's, there's this confusion, there's this kind of um, disapproval or dissatisfaction with it, maybe in the sense that none of us like waiting anyway, right? You hear the idea of waiting and you equate it to some less than enjoyable experiences. 
right? You have to wait at the doctor's office. You have to wait at a restaurant. You have to wait in line. You have to wait for your car to get done. None of these things typically elicit any sort of enthusiasm or excitement for us. And so we tend to distance ourselves from this idea of waiting. But what this passage is going to teach us is that this is actually a very important discipline for believers to understand the importance of waiting and what waiting accomplishes. So part of it in order for us to, uh, to understand this, we have to first kind of reconstruct our understanding of the term because this is not just stopping and doing nothing, right? There is an activeness to waiting that we're going to learn from this text in the next couple of weeks. There's, a, there's an active waiting that we can engage in. What happens when we wait and we wait on the Lord is it helps refine and renew expectation. That's what waiting helps accomplish. It helps refine and renew expectation. And so you can see that this is where Jesus is leading them. But if you're like one of those disciples, you're probably sitting there totally confused by these instructions going, wait for what? And, and, and why? And those are the questions that can kind of help us navigate through the remaining verses. What do we wait for and why do we wait for it? And so Jesus continues in this discussion. He says, well, what you're waiting for is the gift my father has promised, right? The, the thing that I, I talked to you about. And this is where we can see the correlation between waiting and promises, right? There is a gift that has been promised to you, and I want you to wait for it. And we talked last week how promises, uh, we can see these in different places in life and how it influences our conduct and our behavior. And we, we use the example of a wedding, right? And if you think about these vows that are exchanged, or you think about any promise, it kind of carries this inherent understanding of having to wait for something, right? If we were to get on dictionary.com and look at the definition, it, it speaks to this assurance of expectation. So when I make a vow to a spouse or a spouse makes a vow to me to love, to cherish, to hold, to honor, I, I'm, I'm living that out to a certain extent in the moment, but I'm, I'm expecting that to be the reality moving forward, right? This is what I'm anticipating. This is what I'm expecting. I have to wait to see if that comes to fruition. That's part of what comes with the promise. If we're going to truly receive God's promises, we have to learn what is this posture and this discipline of waiting actually look like, right? And it's this, this active sense of waiting that, that we need to cultivate. And so it's connected to this promise that, that Jesus has already told them about. And so Jesus is saying, remember, we've, we've talked about this already. Don't you know what I'm referencing? And so just for our own benefit, let's revisit a few passages that are likely being referenced here. You don't have to turn there, but just follow along with me for a moment as I read them. Think about John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, who will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. John 14, 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 16, 12 through 13. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus is saying, listen, I've talked to you about this. Let me remind you of this gift. This is the Advocate. This is the Spirit. If you were to revisit Luke 24, Luke tells it in this overlapping fashion. He uses it at the end of his gospel and the beginning of Acts. And in Luke 24, here's how he says it. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Here is the gift 
that has been promised to you. I've spoken of it before. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus calls it back to their attention, and he continues in Acts chapter 1 by saying, in fact, John baptized baptized you with water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. An incredibly powerful and significant verse. Now let me offer a disclaimer on this for a moment. We're not going to dive into the implications of that phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, in its fullness today. And the reason for that is is because I think that's going to be an easier and more meaningful conversation when we actually get to chapter 2 and we see the Holy Spirit descend upon the disciples, okay? And we can look at how it manifests itself there. And so when we hear the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, a lot of times we perhaps have had conversations about this charismatic Uh, expression, maybe it manifests itself with the speaking of tongues, things like that. We're going to dive into all those details later because what I believe is actually happening here is Jesus is just reiterating what has been spoken, right? He, He refers back to what not just he said, but what John the Baptist said, right? So if you were to go to Mark 1, 8, or you were to go to Luke 3, 16, Luke 3, 16 says it this way, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So think about the significance. There's this amazing parallelism that's going on here when we read this promise and we see this this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized in his earthly ministry, we have this amazing picture of the Trinity, right? It's God the Father, the Spirit descending, and the Father says, this is my Son, with him I'm well pleased. And it is the inauguration of the earthly ministry. Well, in the same way, now we have the baptism of the Spirit that is the inauguration of the heavenly Jesus' ministry. Right? It's this this new power, this new understanding of it. And there's this parallelism that launches us into the promise of the Spirit and the promise of the church. It's a remarkable parallel that helps us understand what's about to transpire. Now, that being said, let's clarify a few terms to make sure we understand it clearly. The word baptism literally means to immerse, right? To submerge, to to dip into, right? So what we're talking about is an immersion, a submission into, right? Of being submerged in the Holy Spirit. Now, do we need to, in any respect, uh, need to equate that to the practice of being baptized by water, right? Which obviously becomes an ordinance that is practiced not just in the book of Acts, but even today. And so let me clarify that, okay? What we are not saying is that once you are baptized in water, right, when you have that moment where you make a declaration that I want to be united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that once you have been submerged in the water, that all of a sudden you receive the Holy Spirit, right? It is not a direct correlation to the water baptism. And we can say that because in the book of Acts, there are examples where people receive the Holy Spirit, yes, after the, the, the baptism of water, but there are other examples like in chapter 10 where the Holy Spirit invades their life before they're baptized in water. So there's no direct correlation to the water baptism. What, what initiates the, someone to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit is typically through prayer and through faith, right? And so, so through prayer, through faith in this gospel, you're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit, right? There's going to be this immersion of the Spirit's power. Now, when you see the word Holy Spirit, again, I want us to dive into that in more detail when the Holy Spirit reveals itself in its fullness in chapter 2. But just as an introduction today, when you look at the Spirit in the Greek, this is the word pneuma. And pneuma can, can mean a lot of different things. It can mean wind, breath, air, movement. 
It's the same in the Old Testament. Old Testament is ruach, and it's, again, wind, breath, air. But in both cases, very commonly in the scriptures, we see it associated to the divine power and activity of God. And so that's what I want us to hold on to today, right? That the presence of the Spirit ushers us into the activity and into the power of God. And so the question becomes, well, well what is that? Right? What, what is the activity and the power of God? And this is what leads us into this understanding that the disciples have some misconceived expectations of the spirit and the activity of God. So, so Jesus says, you remember all these things we talked about? Remember this, this spirit that's going to come? And, and all of a sudden they say that, and this disappointment of having to wait is kind of, kind of looked beyond. They're, they're not having to wrestle with it too much because they're like, oh, yes, I remember this. This is, this is good stuff. I can't wait. In fact... Jesus, is, is it now at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And it brings back these expectations they had had. Expectations that are reminiscent of those moments where they would walk with Jesus and say, so who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? And these visions of what they thought the Messiah was truly going to achieve. And you really can't blame them. Because here's, here's what a lot of scholarship would say, is that at this point in time, Jews had more or less assumed that, that the Holy Spirit had, had initially or essentially been withheld from the people since the last prophets, right? And so the, the prophets had come, they had spoken, they had spoken through the power of the Holy Spirit, but now there was this kind of drought, so to speak. It had been withheld. And so they were looking for its presence again because when it arrived, it was going to usher in the kingdom, right? So the question is really not random. Because there had always been some sort of association between the spirit and the kingdom. Where they're off is their understanding of how that kingdom will be inaugurated and initiated. Right? And we can see that through parsing this question down a little bit further. The first thing they say is, are you going to restore? And think about the idea of restoration. Restore what? Right? This, this is the idea that God's people, the Jews, had seen this kind of pinnacle in their history being associated with David's kingdom. Right, this moment where they enjoyed all this sovereignty and they were essentially kind of the world's superpower, more or less. And, and there was this reign, there was this land, but since the exile, they've always longed for that return. And even now, they're living in this, this uh, captivity or under this, this Roman rule, so to speak. And so they're, they're asking, are you about to restore the land to us? This kingdom that we once knew in, in David's line, is this about to come back and so first of all they're thinking from an earthly perspective from a land perspective but then look at who they think it's for are you going to restore the kingdom to who to israel it reveals their their nationalistic perspective right it reveals that for them this was just about israel this was not for all peoples or all nations this was for god's chosen people and so they had a limited understanding to who the kingdom would actually be given to and then it was a question of timing. They opened the question by asking, at this time, right now, there's a certain immediacy that they're expecting with these things. And so through all these different elements of this question, we can see that they had completely misguided expectations. Which leads me to a question for us. What are your expectations? What are you waiting for? And are you waiting for the wrong thing? See, this question can serve as a great reminder that it is very easy for us to have misguided expectations. Although they may be uh, genuine, although they may even be rooted from what we see in Scripture, that maybe, just maybe, we're waiting 
for the wrong thing. Now, how does that happen? Well, sometimes it happens because we have a distorted gospel, right? There's this message that we've clung to as truth, but it's been distorted, right? And so we're naturally then uh, falling for and longing for the wrong things. Take, take the prosperity gospel as an example, right? This message of health, wealth, and prosperity. And maybe most of you are out there saying, well, ah, that's not really me. That's just in other cultures and other situations. But, but just the core of the message, I think, is something that we all fall susceptible to, isn't it? Right, that if I'm, if I'm a strong enough believer, if I have enough faith, then I won't have many problems in my life. Right, God will give me that promotion. God will give me all these blessings. He'll give me these successes. He'll give me wealth, health, and prosperity. And before you know it, you're waiting for and longing for the wrong thing. Sometimes it's a distorted calling. Right, we read through the scriptures and we think, well, these things don't really apply to me. I don't need to worry about implementing that in my life. I'm just going to narrow my focus right here. And so we give ourselves to, to a, a dynamic or a component of the faith, but we don't give our whole life to the faith and to distorted understanding of calling what God is asked us to do. I'm curious, what are your expectations? What do you truly expect God to do with your life? What are you waiting for and are you waiting for the wrong thing? This is a very important question. And so Jesus clarifies. He corrects it. He says, it's not for you to know the dates and the times that the Father has determined by his own authority. I love the way he, he just starts that. It's not for you to know. That's such a, such a convicting and humbling statement. That's not of your concern. Quit worrying about that. See, part of what Jesus is doing is reorienting the disciples' perspective to what is under God's control and what's actually been entrusted to them. Right? It kind of reminds me of the serenity prayer. Right? Y'all remember the serenity prayer? God grant me the serenity to uh, surrender the things that, that I cannot change but have the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Right? That essentially what Jesus is saying, listen, there are certain things that are beyond your control. Quit worrying about those things. That's not for you to know. There is another gift that has been promised to you. This is what you need to focus on. And how easily we can get distracted in our own lives and not, not cultivate the gifts that God has entrusted to us because we're worried about things beyond our control. I was thinking about it this weekend, actually. Uh, yesterday was a great day in our house because we just had nothing to do. And it was awesome. And so we spent some time uh, doing some spring cleaning. Got to plant some things in the yard. Jennifer planted things in the yard. I didn't do that part. But, but one of the projects on my list uh, had been to organize my son's closet, organize James's closet. It looked like a bomb had gone off there, I don't know how long ago, so many months ago. And I was just like, we got to get in there and figure that thing out. And so I spent a couple hours working in his closet. And I kid you not, by the time I was done, I had a trash bag full of junk. Okay? And I'm not talking like the 13-gallon trash bag you put in your kitchen. I'm talking like the 39 gallon one that should be used for outdoors and leaves and things like it was so much so just broken toys toys that were missing parts just, just stuff junk and so I got it out of his closet and you know what that allowed us to do it allowed us to rediscover some of the toys he really loves playing with right and so all of a sudden we had we had kind of found these things that are some of his favorites and sure enough the rest of the day he and his sister started playing with them and all of a sudden, laser tag was going on in the house again, and this cool little race car track that they used to play with was being utilized because they had rediscovered it. And I started thinking, man, I wonder if that's true for us. 
how many times in the closet of our own souls we get distracted with all this junk and the things that we've been given, the things that we've been entrusted, the things that we're actually created to do have been buried deep within and we've forgotten that they even exist. And what we really need to do is cleanse ourselves. Right? We need to no longer distract ourselves and rediscover what God has entrusted to us and, and begin to live and according to, to those gifts. And so what has he entrusted to us? What is it that we need to rediscover? Well, Jesus reiterates it. You will be clothed with power. Power. Now, I also wonder what image comes to mind when you hear that word. Power. What is it that you're waiting for? You're waiting for the Holy Spirit. You're waiting for God's power. Now, when we think about this from a contemporary perspective, we tend to associate power to strength, to status, to image, to titles, to, to influence, and all these different things. But what about from a biblical perspective? What, what do we mean when we're talking about power? And when we look through Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that he's entrusted power to his followers that gives them the ability to cast out demons and cure diseases and overcome the evil one. What about for you and me today? What does that look like? I mean, think about it. This is something that, that we've committed to praying regularly as a church, right? For God's power to be unleashed in our lives, in our church, in this community, in this world. What do we mean by that? What does that look like for you? Does that mean you just want all your problems to go away? Is that what we're praying for? Right? Is it, does it mean that all of a sudden there's a certain level of of influence that, that is all of a sudden achieved for us? Is it our own version of a political theocracy, right, that all of a sudden we get to wake up one day and, and the laws and legislation of our country somewhat resemble some sort of biblical morality? Prayers back in schools, the Ten Commandments can sit prominently displayed out of a courthouse. Is that what we're wanting? What power are we longing for? What does that mean? Or another way to ask it is, why? Why do we need God's power? And this is what Jesus offers them as further clarification. You need this power so you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the gift and the responsibility that has been entrusted to you. Witnesses. And that word simply means to, to testify to facts. You think about these disciples. They've seen the earthly Jesus, they've seen the resurrected Jesus, and now they're the ones that need to go explain the facts of what he has done, right? In fact, witnesses, this term and all of its variations becomes such a favorite of Luke in the book of Acts, it's mentioned more than 39 times and becomes a dominant theme in this narrative, right? To testify to the works of Jesus. And specifically, it's going to take place in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, what we have in verse 8 is essentially a thesis statement for the rest of the book because it literally unfolds this way, right? That all of a sudden what we read in the ongoing chapters are these moments where, where Jesus' followers become witnesses and they take this gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it's very much a thesis statement that can be taken literally. But I believe there's application for us today, right? That you and I can take a look at this and see that the reason God wants us to wait, the, what, the things that he wants to entrust to us is so that you and I can bear witness to what he has done in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. 
Now, that's not a literal application. I see it in, in two distinct ways. I see it both geographical and I see it relational. Right? So think about it from a geography standpoint. If we're going to apply it to our context, our Jerusalem becomes a local environment. Right? We need to testify to what God has done in our immediate community, whether that's our neighborhood, whether that's our city. Right? But we need to, to be faithful in the proximity within which God has placed us. You think about Judea and Samaria, that's more regional. We need to be ones that carry this gospel to, to the state, to the country, to, to a shared region. You think about the ends of the earth, it's going to take us to different cultures. Our responsibility is to aid in the global witness and advancement of the gospel. Right? This is what he's entrusted us to do. It's a geographical application. But it's also relational. Right? Because notice that he's mentioned Samaria. And if you know anything about this point in time, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. There was prejudice, there was animosity, there was resentment, there was hatred. And so part of what Jesus is saying is that, listen, this gospel is going to take you beyond race, creed, worldview, prejudices. It's going to take you, yes, even to your enemies. Because now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And so our story, our witness takes us not just ge geographically speaking, but relationally speaking to all those that need to hear it. This is your responsibility. And one of the reasons I believe we fail to live into this to the level that we should is because we've categorized it. You know what we've done? We've made it a missions verse. So we have a missions ministry, we have a missions catalog, we have a missions wall, and we slap Acts 1-8 all over it. And so what do we do? Man, we get fired up about Acts 1-8 one week out of the year. When our schedules finally align, and we finally have the resources, now I can go live out Acts 1-8. And Jesus is not saying, hey, this is what you do when you have time, when you have money. Right, to demonstrate some sort of commitment. This is a lifestyle. This is the power of God being evidenced in your life. That you would be witnesses wherever I send you. So we can't categorize it. And say that only applies to me occasionally when I'm comfortable. No, this is the charge and the instruction that has been entrusted to all of those who would call Jesus as Lord. And so he's entrusted us this. And so we need to, to consider, man, how is this being evidenced in our life? Let me, let me offer a quote from John Stott that I think says this so well. This is his, in his commentary message in the book of Acts. He summarizes so much of what's taking place here. He says, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension all culminate in this great gift which the prophets had foretold and which would be recognized as the chief evidence that God's kingdom had been inaugurated. For this conclusion of Christ's work on earth was also a fresh beginning. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus to equip him for his public ministry, so now the Spirit was to come upon his people to equip them for theirs. The Holy Spirit would not only apply to them the salvation which Jesus had achieved by his death and resurrection, but would impel them to proclaim throughout the world the good news of this salvation. Salvation that is given is salvation that is to be shared. I love that. Salvation that is given is salvation that is to be shared. This is the evidence of God's power and his spirit in our lives. And so one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, am I truly in step with the spirit? 
And maybe the way we ask that is by evaluating, who am I sharing this with? Am I sharing this? Right? This is the other part of our prayer. We're praying for God's power to be unleashed. Why? So that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. And evidence of God's spirit, his power manifesting itself in your life is the fact that we feel compelled to share the salvation that we have received. That's the charge for us. And I love the way that the psalmist identifies it in Psalm 107. If you read the opening lines of Psalm 107, it eventually says, let the redeemed tell their story. That's the charge for you and me. That you and I have been brought into this unbelievable fact that all of our misery, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our shame, we've been restored, we've been renewed, we've been redeemed out of those things, and now we have a story to tell. Every moment of your life carries some form of significance for you to point to what God has and is doing in your life. This is not just something we think about, it's something we speak about. It should be in our conversations. It should define our relationships. We should be the chorus of the redeemed that tell their story. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. It thrusts us outward to proclaim the good news. But it reminds us the important discipline to wait. The only way we have those expectations refined and renewed is to stop and to wait. To make sure we don't miss them. To make sure we don't go out on our own ability or with a distorted gospel or with a distorted sense of calling, but to constantly and actively wait for his presence to reveal itself in our lives. This doesn't mean we don't do anything. It means we constantly come before him and submit ourselves to these instructions faithfully and diligently. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is by assigning to them the importance that they deserve. And again, this is not just some teaching. This isn't just some passing comment. These are the final instructions from the Lord. I think about this habit that I cultivated somewhere in the course of my life that, that every conversation with a family member, I wanted to end by saying, I love you. And so it didn't matter what, the, the situation or the circumstance. If I was going to school, if I was going to work, if I was on the phone, I always wanted to end that conversation with, I love you. Because I wanted the last words for my loved ones to hear would be a word of love. A word of, even, even when we're arguing, right? It's like, I love you. You know what I mean? Like you still say it. Just committed to it. Because I want it to be the last thing they hear. It needs to carry significance. That's what Jesus has done. These are his final instructions. This is his depiction, his description of the promise that waits for you and for me. And if you and I want to truly embrace the power of the Holy Spirit and all that it means for you and me, then you and I need to join with the chorus of the redeemed and tell our story. We need to pray for God's power to be unleashed in our lives in this church, in this community, in this world. Why? So that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because salvation that is received is salvation that is to be shared. And so may that be the commitment for us today. That we learn the discipline of waiting. That we sit before our Father's feet 
and we are reminded once again of all that the cross and the resurrection accomplishes for you and me, and it causes us to sing, it causes us to speak, it leads us to tell this amazing, beautiful story of salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess so many times that we, we remain silent because our lives are distracted by the clutter of misguided expectations. Father, we get led astray because we feel like there are other things that, that we need to do, other things that seem important. We give our lives to, to things that don't carry as much meaning or significance. Father, forgive us for all the moments that we miss out on the power and the gift that you've entrusted to us. And so, Father, today, for all of us, help us to wait on you. Help us to see all that you want us to see. And I pray that if there's anyone in here today, Father, that that our souls are just filled with clutter and with distractions and with sin and with with all these things that bury what you've entrusted to us deep within, Father, help us confess those things. Help us to bring forth the power of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Help it to to change who we are and how we move and how we live and how we breathe and, and our very understanding of our existence. Help us to wait on you. See your promises for all their fullness. We approach the cross that all of us would be undone by the gift of salvation. And that we would see that this gift is not just something we receive, it's something we share. So, Father, I pray that if there are things we need to let go of during this Lenten season, help us to let go of them. If there are things we need to commit to, if we need to commit to sharing with a neighbor, sharing with a family member, if we need to commit to just being in your word, Father, help us to prepare our hearts and to wait on you right expectations right expectations that draw us into once again an understanding that you do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine so we love you Father today is for you and it's in Jesus precious holy name we pray these things Amen Amen I'm going to ask that you remain seated uh, during this time of invitation we have a little bit of an extended time of worship here today and this first song is meant to to help govern your prayers I guess you could say or to further reflect on this message today and to really just declare together and to, to commit we're going to wait and we're going to we're going to anticipate these promises that God has given us and after we've had a chance to to sing through these things and we've had a chance just to be on our own with the Lord we'll we'll stand together and if at that point you need to come forward and make any sort of decision known, then you can come forward, but but let us today, in this moment, let us wait on the power and the promise.